I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Okay, welcome everyone back to our second session with uh, Carol Ferris and myself. I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and we um, we started last week with this introduction to Jung's Red Book and its relevance for these incredibly strange times that we are all in. As always, we hope you're all doing well or relatively well. Um, it feels like we're in a really broad community right now with all of what's unfolding, and I know you know, Carol and I are certainly grateful for that. So hi, Carol. Good morning. Glad to be here. Glad to, it's lovely to see everybody's faces on a Sunday morning. Yeah, or Sunday evening. We we have folks from yeah, all over. So Sunday knows? tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So here's our plan. We're going to be doing this every Sunday. But the idea is that 10 a.m. Pacific time to about 11 a.m. Pacific time, um, we're going to just try to do an hour every Sunday. And our plan is to essentially work through the stories of the Red Book story by story. We've selected just 20 pages for today to start with, but it's really still so much material and there's so much background and so much introduction. And Carol is going to be introducing a great deal of astrology and charts from different players in this and um, different dates that are listed as the Red Book progresses. So we're going to be throwing a lot at you every week. It's really, you know, nourishing for us. We hope it's nourishing for you. Carol, anything to add before I... No, let's go. All right. So I want to do a little bit of history. I, I wrote this in the newsletter this week. Um, but importantly, for what we're doing, Jung did not do this journey alone, right? So this is about the dive into his unconscious, this journey that he took right around the start of World War I. He had two people who really are critical players in this whole story, but don't often show up in the history in the way that they should. And I want to just make sure we bring them front and center. That's his wife, Emma Jung, um, and his colleague and longtime lover. Really, in a way, she was his second wife. They all sort of figured this out together. And there's a lot of different opinions on all of these different intertwining relationships. But her name is Tony Wolfe. So Emma and Tony um, were really holding the alchemical boss for Jung to do this deep dive. They were his teachers. They were his support. They were, um, Emma really was kind of the physical, tangible support. She made sure the house was running. She was um, always a huge financial support to Jung as um, she was one of the richest women in Europe. And he married her as a quite poor student. She was caring for their children during the day and supporting him. 
And Tony Wolf was really by his side doing these dives into his unconscious and really supporting him in the discovery of active imagination. I think we're all going to learn more how much when the black books are published um, by the Philemon Foundation, uh, maybe later this year, maybe next year. So Tony Wolf had a really deep understanding of the inner life and a a comfort with going into the unconscious in a way that Jung really did not have organically. And so I think of her as kind of holding the rope above ground and supporting him to descend and Emma as kind of holding the container. So that feels like an important setup for for me and I think Carol as well. And Carol's got the charts of Emma, Jung, and Tony. So I'm going to hand it back to her. You want to? So what we have here is in the middle is Jung's chart, his horoscope. His wife, Emma, is in the horoscope in the next circle out. And Tony's chart is in the outer wheel here. Without going into all of the what what we might think of as the machinery of of astrology, one of the things that I'm most struck by as I look at these three people together is that this is the root of the chart. This is it's called the IC, the Imum Celli, the inner heaven, whereas this at the top is the MC, the media jelly. So if you think of this from a Chinese point of view, this is where heaven enters us. And this is where we are rooted, not only in earth, but in our DNA. And these two women held his root with their own natures, especially Tony, Neptune here, and Emma with this traffic jam and Taurus supporting him with material And they also, what we could call is, kept his reputation as a philosopher and a metaphysician alive while he personally was making the descent. So this is is really a a whole topic all, all its own, but it's significant that as he leaves the the commanding presence of his position, a, a culture that is even at this time, getting ready for a horrible war, World War I, that what he finds, where he finds what he's looking for is not in his worldly accomplishments, but that he finds his soul in the feminine. And you couldn't have a clearer outpicturing of two real women embodying and holding him as he comes to terms with his own feminine nature and with the feminine then uh, th- this is a, I mean, uh, really worth a, a whole t- time all itself. But, but um, we can come back to that later. And we certainly can come back. I mean, it's such a critical piece of all this. So we're still just trying to set this up. But um, Carol, I love that piece about Emma's Taurus. Oh yeah, mental Taurus nature, the earthiness yeah. of that, profound. And Tony, you know. Tony has a, a Pisces moon and she, her Virgo Libra um, touch his Jupiter and Libra in the eighth and her South node sits in the 12th on his, on his ascendant. So there's plenty here. It's so fun. I mean, we're just exploring so much of this, but to know this from the Jungian, you know, the kind of history side and the essence of it, to know these roles that these women played is, is one thing. And then to see their astrology, I mean, of course, it just illuminates it so much more and really how fundamental their natures were in playing both of those roles. It's awesome. Okay, so um, 
what we're going to get into today, the stories, and again, Carol and I will go back and forth with this, with the astrology, but um, there's three stories. They're short. They start, um, if you have, again, and I'm encouraging folks, if you if you want to take this journey with us to buy the reader edition, um, you know, ideally at a local bookstore to try to support one of our local bookstores, wherever you are that have, um, that are going through hardship right now. But you can buy this reader. It's it's somewhere around $30 new. And we're going to be going through it story by story. So if you've got it, we're starting, you know, really at the very beginning. There's three books to the Red Book. We're maybe going to do the first two because there's some discussion about the third one and um, whether it should be included or not. But Liber Primus, we start with the story, The Way of What is to Come. Uh, the story after that is soul and God, and the one after is on the service of the soul. So Carol really sets us up by talking about Jung's reclamation of the feminine soul. And that is really the core story of the Red Book. And so I'm going to start by reading a section of this. And if you want to follow along, we're going to start on page 125. So this, this section is in italics. And it's really his message to, to all of us, to his readers, you know, to whomever may at some point read this book. So I'll start here. It is no teaching and no instruction that I give you. On what basis should I presume to teach you? I give you news of the way of this man, but not of your own way. My path is not your path. Therefore, I cannot teach you. The way is within you, but not in gods, nor in teachings, nor in laws. Within us is the way, the truth, and the life. Woe betide those who live by way of examples. Life is not with them. If you live according to an example, you thus live the life of that example. But who should live your own life if not yourself? So live yourselves. The signposts have fallen, unblazed trails lie before us. Do not be greedy to gobble up the fruits of foreign fields. Do you not know that you yourselves are the fertile acre which bears everything that avails you? Yet who today knows this? Who knows the way to the eternally fruitful climes of the soul? You seek the way through mere appearances. You study books and give ear to all kinds of opinion. What good is all that? There is only one way, and that is your way. You seek the path, I warn you away from my own. It can also be the wrong way for you. May each go his own way. I will be no savior, no lawgiver, no master teacher unto you. You are no longer little children. Giving laws, bettering, making things easier has all become wrong and evil. May each one seek out his own way. The way leads to mutual love and community. Men will come to see and feel the similarity and commonality of their ways. Laws and teaching held in common compel people to solitude so that they may escape the pressure of undesirable contact. But solitude makes people hostile and venomous. Therefore, give people dignity and let each of them stand apart so that each may find his own fellowship and love it. Power stands against power, contempt against contempt, love against love. Give humanity dignity, 
and trust that life will find the better way. The one eye of the Godhead is blind. The one ear of the Godhead is deaf. The order of its being is crossed by chaos. So be patient with the crippledness of the world and do not overvalue its consummate beauty. Mm-hmm. How does that strike you, Carol? Well, here we are. Yeah. You know, we're, um, if you think about the contraction, that's the word I've been using for Capricorn for the last two and a half years, that that deep, that deep winter is the contraction of the year. It's the contraction of the zodiac. It holds the light inside the dark. And the multiplication, the intensification of this Capricornian time, literally all of us living, living it out in solitude, brings us to, in, in that alchemical way where the flask is stoppered and now you have to live with your own shit, that the temptation, because of the spirit of the times that we're in, is to want to turn back out and be out there and this return to, quote, normal, unquote, or to make it like it was, or to think that the answer is in the maintenance of the systems that have brought us to this place, and that where the answer is, is turning inward and in an, an inner knowing. I... Jung talks at one point about, um, he says, uh, I'm trying to hide in the cold, hard stars. And I I took that very much to heart, you know, the temptation to explain everything and to, you know, have an answer because, because time is rhythm and we can count on it. But it's beyond that, you know, this, this inward turning. And, and this is so much, this so much speaks to that. It's so much speaks to that. I mean, it's, yeah, really, we were speaking earlier the other day just about what is it, the the meeting of the literal and the mythical right now is so profound, you know, and that we are, in fact, each living now in our little alchemical bosses to a degree. I mean, it's, you know, the, the doors have closed, um, of course, not completely literally. Many of us are allowed to leave and go outside and, you know, stay six feet apart. But this fundamental essence of deep retraction and and the way that Jung's entire body of work speaks to alchemy and what happens when we contract into an inner space and do the work there. Um, that, which means withdrawing projections, which means wrestling with our fears and our darknesses in a different way. And, and I'll read this shortly, re-encountering our own souls and saying hi again in a way that is often terrifying and very easy to avoid when we have endless activity and humans to interact with. Say again. Distraction. Right. Endless distraction. And so, so I'll read this next section um, that starts right afterwards. This is the beginning of um, the story, Refinding the Soul. And it really is, you know, Jung was just speaking to us as kind of um, more of the mystic, you know, he's, 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 writing down kind of for theoretical readers um you know what this whole journey was when he when he later began to really draw it and write it in calligraphy in this massive book i will just show you this is hard really hard to do because if you know the red book you know how big this is um so this is the red book without the cover on it but the first page here is this is the beginning of 
what is known as the Red Book, but Jung, Jung began it as a just writing on parchment before he ordered this large red leather volume from um, a bookbinder. Would you, um, we talked about this, perhaps frame this whole thing in terms of active imagination, of what, yeah. what, what came to be called active imagination that's holding the whole, whole process out of which this arises. Yes, thank you. So Jung began by having visions, you know, and I spoke about this a bit last week, but I'll recount some of it. He was, he was a doctor. He was a psychiatrist working primarily with schizophrenic patients. He knew very deeply about what he already understood to be this collective unconscious and this strange mythic layer that he was seeing in schizophrenic patients. But when he started having these visions, which were um, terrifying to him, he wondered what was going on with his psyche. And again, largely with Tony's help and Emma's support to keep him sane and well-fed and all of that during this time, he began to sort of approach these visions and these dreams with this capacity to kind of maintain his humanness and his consciousness. So it's not at all lucid dreaming, which is like an idea of, waking in the middle of the night within a dream and kind of directing the dream or engaging with the dream in some way. There's different ways that people do lucid dreaming. This is him as an ego, as a full human, encountering his dreamscape and engaging with it as a living, what he calls self-existing being or, or whole living landscape. An analogy that I use is I think of it as the difference between a naturalist, um, say, collecting butterflies and pinning the butterflies to, to, you know, foam core and naming all the butterflies. This is Jung watching the butterflies, talking to the butterflies, learning from the butterflies. He's learning from whatever is unfolding inside of his own psyche. And he's doing it through a conscious process that he later called active imagination. Um, Carol, what, what would you add to that? No, nothing. I just think that uh, that that as we talk about turning inward and contacting the soul, Jung gave Western psychological language to a process that's been available in other cultures and other languages for a very, very long time before the 20th century. But for what we're doing here, I think for people who are not familiar with the process, how you hold the journey in the unconscious, that that's what's that that it that there is. Not, not so much a methodology, not so much a system, but um, a, a kind of a surrender and approach to, to how this can arise from, the, from this world. I think surrender is the word, right? It's surrender and fundamental respect. It's, it's a surrender with tremendous respect for what is living, with, living but invisible within our own beings each of our own beings, right? And that there is a natural world. It, it really, for me, has tremendous resonance with having fundamental respect for the natural world and the living world outside of us as well. <clears throat> Again, versus simply trying to pin it and name it. But it is, there's a, you know, there is that kind of old, you know, what Jung began learning from various indigenous tribes that he was encountering in his own journey throughout his life, that he was learning these old ancient ways of engaging with psyche as a living experience instead of as something that's just a dream and discarding it over and over. 
So Carol, shall, shall we start with refining the soul to kind of give this more yeah. essence? Yeah. Okay. So this is on page 127. Again, if you're following along, it's the beginning of refinding the soul. When I had the vision of the flood in October of the year 1913, it happened at a time that was significant for me as a man. At that time, in the 40th year of my life, I had achieved everything that I had wished for myself. I had achieved honor, power, wealth, knowledge, and every human happiness. Then my desire for the increase of these trappings ceased, the desire ebbed from me, and horror came over me. The vision of the flood seized me, and I felt the spirit of the depths, but I did not understand him. Yet he drove me on with unbearable inner longing, and I said, My soul, where are you? Do you hear me? I speak. I call you. Are you there? I have returned. I am here again. I have shaken the dust of all the lands from my feet, and I have come to you. I am with you. After long years of long wandering, I have come to you again. Should I tell you everything I have seen, experienced, and drunk? Or do you not want to hear about all of the noise of life and of the world? But one thing you must know, the one thing I have learned, is that one must live this life. This life is the way the long sought after way to the unfathomable, which we call divine. There is no other way. All other ways are false paths. I have found the right way. It led me to you, to my soul. I return tempered and purified. Do you still know me? How long the separation lasted. Everything has become so different. And how did I find you? How strange my journey was. What words should I use to tell you on what twisted paths a good star has guided me to you? Give me your hand, my almost forgotten soul. How warm the joy at seeing you again, you long disavowed soul. Life has led me back to you. Let us thank the life I have lived for all the happy and all the sad hours, for every joy, for every sadness. My soul, my journey should continue with you. I still wander with you and ascend to my solitude. Carol, do you want to keep reading the next section? Mm, I just, I, I think about um, the, the, the soul of the earth when I, when I listen to this and, and where we are today. <clears throat> Re-encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we spoke we spoke of the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times last time um, and chose not to read some of the earlier sections that kind of speak a little bit to who the, they are that, that also are, are just in these early pages of the book. But Carol, do you want to read this next piece? Yeah. And- the spirit of the depths forced me to say this and at the same time to undergo it against myself since I had not expected it then. I still labored misguidedly under the spirit of this time and thought differently about the human soul. I thought and spoke much of the soul. I knew many learned words for her. I had judged her and turned her into a scientific object. I did not consider that my soul cannot be the object of my judgment and knowledge. Much more are my judgment and knowledge the objects of my soul. 
Therefore, the spirit of the depths forced me to speak to my soul, to call upon her as a living and self-existing being. I had to become aware that I had lost my soul. From this, we learn how the spirit of the depths considers the soul. He sees her, he, the spirit of the depths, and more of that later on. He sees her as a living and self-existing being. And with this, he contradicts the spirit of the time for whom the soul is a thing dependent on man, which lets herself be judged and arranged and whose circumference we can grasp. I had to accept that what I had previously called my soul was not at all my soul, but a dead system. Hence, I had to speak to my soul as to something far off and unknown, which did not exist through me, but through whom I existed. I'll just read this next paragraph and then I'll stop. He whose desire turns away from outer things reaches the place of the soul. If he does not find the soul, the horror of emptiness will overcome him and fear will drive him with a whip lashing time and again in a desperate endeavor and a blind desire for the hollow things of the world. He becomes a fool through his endless desire and forgets the way of his soul never to find her again. He will run after all things and will seize hold of them, but he will not find his soul since he would find her only in himself. Truly his soul lies in things and men, but the blind one seizes things and men, yet not his soul in things and men. He has no knowledge of his soul. How could he tell her apart from things and men? He could find his soul in desire itself, but not in the objects of desire. If he possessed his desire and his desire did not possess him, he would lay a hand on his soul, since his desire is the image and expression of his soul. If we possess the image of a thing, we possess half the thing. Thank you. It's so beautiful. It's always moving to me every time I hear this or read this. You know, I mean, I'll just say, because Carol, I think you've got astrology for for this section, right? Um, So I'll just say briefly that, um, you know, so much again of, of of the theme of this book is his young come young's coming to recognition that his intellectual nature had really dominated his life and by dominating his life had repressed and hidden this um deeper knowledge this knowledge this fundamental soulful emotional spiritual embodied character that was connected as if to the aquifer, to everything, to all of us, to all of nature. And that by being a man of books and of philosophy and of academia, and also this climbing of ladders, that he really had to acknowledge that he had lost something. And so this, again, I mean, I will never, I think, not find that early section so stunning of him re-encountering his soul and saying she's she is not something you can know with your brain she's not something you can know with your books and learning of theology and um you know dante's own descent it is your own descent that's what's relevant your own relationship to your soul so let me share we looked a bit at this last week but 
What we have here is in the inner wheel is Jung's natal horoscope, July 26, 1875, 7.29 p.m. in Keswil, Switzerland. A part of what we can see about Jung is that from an astrological point of view, if we think of a natal horoscope as an arrival and an adaptation to a, a geography and a moment and a season, that in this beginning he has a predilection for the unusual, sun conjunct Uranus, that he is going to be a different person, that he's going to march to the beat of his own drummer with a great deal of heat and a kind of ferocity, the Leo energy, that he's deeply sensitive, that Venus and Mercury, that, that his, how it is that he reads the world and how he feels about his read on the world is going to play and his relationship with his own feminine and giving voice to the feminine is going to be an essential ingredient in the development of this story. And then we touched briefly on this last week, the moon-Pluto conjunction, um, a, a nourishment from the depths would be the, in a way, uh, the most benign way to talk about this. So th there's so much to talk about here, but this event, November 14th, 1913 in Kuznacht is the, the, the night when he calls out to his soul. He's already had the dream in October about the flood from Europe in which all of Europe is flooded. And he's already anticipating and sensing the arrival of of the incredible clash between um, forces that are trying to project outside themselves that will result in war. So here he is at, at that, that this outer event. I talked a little bit last time about how this outer event, his 12th house is being waked up. His relationship with the depths and with the infinite is being waked up in these events. And we'll see when you look at the astrology of the next six months that this begins to be, um, he's spending more and more and more time with himself and the infinite. We also have, um, this is, I've had a wonderful conversation with other astrologers talking about how, in his natal chart, we have from the very beginning an Aquarius ascendant, not good at drawing straight lines with this, sorry. He has an Aquarius ascendant, which is a sort of a restatement of his willingness to be a pioneer and push up against the edges of what's comfortable and known. And it's tied to Neptune, which is the astrology's name for um, the, in a way, the unconscious, but it's where we are willing to, all of us, each of us in our own place, where we're willing to surrender our distinctions, our separateness, our how it is that we form ourselves in the world and enter a relationship with oneness. So the dream itself and being halfway through the Uranus cycle is really setting him off at this point. And, um, and that the, the, this, who am I as a man? What does it mean to be a man? What is my culture for? What is my reputation about? And is tied to this capacity for surrender. So um, not, there, there's several other markers in this. The, the, the dream in October also has, it sets up this very powerful grand fixed cross where he's really at a crossroads. Time has brought him to a crossroads and then it drops him 
deeply down into this surrendered state. So if you think about these times, we're, we're at our own crossroads. <laughs> you know, I was looking at, um, we wanted to just touch briefly um, on the astrology of the times. So a year later is the Battle of the Marne. And now when you look at, at the beginning of Jung's descent, you can see that the great energies at work in the world, Saturn, constriction, and Pluto, underworld, are still quite a ways apart in 2013, but they're looming, their, their approach to each other, their, what's going to happen when they come together. You know, structure and underworld is prefigured here, and he's feeling that. Plus which he's also, because of Jupiter opposite, Uranus, Mercury, he is coming into contact with his inner feminine and her voice. And in the beginning, of course, she's blind. He can't see her and she cannot see. And so this is the flood dream. But what we have later, a year later, now we have Saturn and Pluto have arrived. And this is when some of his most intense kinds of visions and his surrender to the, the broader thing that's happening in the world. So almost exactly a hundred years ago, 1914 and 2020, here is where we have Saturn and Pluto in early January of this year coming together, contraction and darkness. So his, as he says, my journey's not your journey. I can't make your journey for you, but I can tell you what it's like to make the journey. And that he made the journey at a time when his position and his authority would have made it very easy for him to, to instead of turning inward, to turn outward. So, so even though we won't make, have his particular journey, the, the, what he fashioned about how to come to the, the, the soul, the personal soul in this kind of time, we can definitely learn from that. Thank you, Carol. That's so um, stunning. There's so many elements we've talked about that are similar, the astrology of that time, of course, as as now. Um, that Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which we haven't spoken about exactly, I don't think, but you know, knowing for myself as a non-astrologer, you know, somebody who loves this stuff but is not at all an astrologer, that for several years as this has been heating up, I've really been sort of slightly like anticipating that full conjunction. What was it? January 12th when they fifth fifth, but it'd been arriving for quite a while. Well, it had been arriving. And so when it passed and then a week passed and two weeks passed, I sort of took a deep breath. I thought, okay, we didn't start a world war, you know, we're maybe where it's passed, but of course that's when the virus started spreading. Right. And it just took a few months, a couple of months for, for it to hit us completely. Is that part of your read on this? Yeah, well, and if you, if you, can you, am I still screen sharing? No, nope, we see your beautiful All right, face, No. All right, so let me just share this because what we also want to see is when Jupiter entered the mix. Right. So Jupiter, which is. So just a little more, Carol, if you can. Oh, okay. There we go, yeah. So now we have a very powerful quartet of energies, Jupiter and Mars. 
So imagistically, if you think about how we embody the energies, how we in our nature embody the larger energies of time and the depths, then Saturn is how we embody limitation. We make decisions and structures through the choices that we make. For those of you who are devotees of the I Ching, it's reading number 60. It's Jia, that meaning comes from limitation. Pluto, below the surface. Benignly, psychology, profoundly and potently death. Mars, action and intensity, the blade how we take up space and have territory and either defend or aggress from it. And Jupiter, who, not forgetting that he was Zeus before he was Jupiter, potency and expansion. So something that had been shaping up really for from 2018 that begins to intensify in 2020 and is exacerbated at the eclipse of January 12th, 13th, 14th. Finally here, the inflation of Jupiter and the heat and, and power of Mars really, really now have brought us on March 21st to now how are, you know, and over here, the north of the, the, the nodes, the north node in Cancer, how what's our responsibility in this how do we turn inward and hold what is tender and sacred inside ourselves as the time the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths are forcing us inward because of the contraction and the collapse collapse of systems outward and Carol, before you click out of this, you also spoke about Neptune in Jung's chart, and it strikes me that Neptune in Pisces right now must yeah. really, again, be giving us that experience of, I mean, as we're all experiencing, all the calls for global unity, uh, the call from the Secretary General of the UN for a global ceasefire, um, and just our fundamental experience of oneness right now with the planet, where it all shares something subterraneally that we can't see. This Neptune and Pisces, can you speak to that a bit? Well, um, if Neptune is our surrender of our separateness to experience primary oneness, then, and, and in astrological thinking, Pisces is, of course, Neptune's home. The ocean is Neptune's home. So not just the thing, the ocean, but the oceanic, that now each of us is touched all of us, there's no one who is immune from this. And I, I began to think this week, everyone has the virus. This is a conversation that, we, that some of us had the other day. We may not have it physically, we may not be ill, our families may not be ill, we may be blessed in terms of that kind of suffering. But, but a part of, of what we're coming to in, in the inner world and and because of Neptune and Pisces, is to be touched by everybody. And uh, I think about, you know, I'm an old 60s person, and I, I think about Leon Russell singing, never treat a brother like a passing stranger. Always try to keep the love light burning. And um, I was reminded of that when I um, read reading number 56 in the Yijing, that 
when you are in strange times and everybody is wandering and you're a stranger, you have to remember you're not home. You don't have your support around you. You have to remember kindness. Yeah. I'm going to just do a little more reading and then we will open for questions and see what folks have. But Carol, I thought I'd read the end of 130, well, 139. So I'm not going to read most of this. I mean, there's a few, there's just one thing I'll say before, which is we don't have time to get to it, but it's such gender is, is really a huge part of the red book. And it's something that we've spoken at length in other classes on the red book, because it's very compelling to me. Um, and you know, I'm not a German speaker, obviously, well, not obviously, but I'm not a German speaker. Um, but I know that there's a number of questions about translation and different choices of translation in the book that would change certain meanings of things. But, um, let me just briefly actually go to footnote 57, um, just to step back here, which is on page 135 of the reader. But Jung is really wrestling in this section around um, his his own personal discovery. And again, this is really before he got into the study of alchemy and began finding all of the texts from around the globe and history that supported his own understanding of all this, but he's just starting to move into it. And he's starting to explore the idea that God may be either female in image and inside of himself or a child. Um, And this is astounding to him and very confusing and perplexing. Um, He says, um, I'm just going to bounce around here for a second, but he's exploring, you know, who is God? I had to recognize and accept that my soul is a child and that my God in my soul is a child. Um, he says, you know, in various places, it's it's a um, female God, female soul. It's a child. One needs to be a, a servant to this God. But it's, you know, he says it's repugnant to me. It's confusing to me to be a servant of a woman or a servant of a child. So he's wrestling his ego. And again, as a man in, you know, really established European patriarchy and a man that was very successful in established European patriarchy to be having these conversations, you can feel this descent down in his psyche of what hierarchy is. Carol, we had been talking about the low, right? And this really, go ahead. Well, I, I just think the conversation Satya and I were having earlier this morning is that, that he is brought in the way that he opens with Isaiah and really as a, as a European Christian, really a, a vulnerable about prophecy, about things being prophesied, about a way that is to come. And that in that prophecy, it is be like a child, be innocent, come down to earth and be lowly. So um, in the beginning, as in the end, because in the end of the Red Book, he talks about worms and and about um, coming back down to earth and how it is, how do we stay in connection with what bears us? Mm-hmm. With what bears us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that return to the ocean, right? I mean, all of these images of returning to the great mother, um, to the oneness, you know, again, I mean, it gets into, um, you know, the core of Hinduism and, and really all religions on some fundamental level, what are we trying to get back to? And so here he's wrestling with what, how to understand the image of his soul and of God. And we get into this more explicitly as the stories 
the Red Book, you know, really opens up into quite a bit of story. There's a lot of characters, and that's why sometimes I refer to it as a novel. Again, I use that loosely. But if you follow along with us in this, um, you know, there are really stories that open up. But um, he wrestles, so I just want to read a little bit. This is footnote 57. Um, it's the editor Sonu Shambhasani pulled from Jung's 1925 lecture seminar. And he just is exploring, he says, he's really wondering about God. He says, I could arrive at nothing satisfactory and thought for a time that perhaps the anima figure was the deity. So he's for a moment thinking maybe the inner feminine, maybe this feminine soul that I'm wrestling with, maybe she's the deity. I said to myself that perhaps men had had a female God originally, but growing tired of being governed by women, they had then overthrown this God. I practically threw the whole metaphysical problem into the anima and conceived of it as a dominating spirit of the psyche. In this way, I got into a psychological argument with myself about the problem of God. For me, this footnote really is tremendously illuminating for the whole journey of the Red Book because it's, it's not entirely linear. I mean, he goes, he kind of switches between God and soul. He switches between um, she and him. There's, there's ways that it kind of gets twisty and turny um, because you can feel him still really wrestling with what is going on as he dives into this active imagination. It's an active process of engaging with his inner life. So it's not, it, it doesn't have the tidiness that some of his later scientific or, um, you know, more concrete writings do, although those also get mixed up. So that feels important to me. Carol, you want to say anything before I do this last little reading? I just want to go forward a couple of weeks. Satya and I are talking about Easter and resurrection and about how we, how we create God. So this is a, this is a, um, a telegraphing this, this, this that he has set up for himself about about death and resurrection. So Easter feels like a really appropriate time to do that. Yeah, we will be gathering on Easter. That is our plan. So you can join us if you'd like. Um, so this is the end of page 139 and I'm gonna read and I, I just, for me, it's another invocation kind of for the fear um, that many of us are feeling. Um, you know, of course, uh, as a therapist, um, I'm very aware of how much anxiety is brewing among some people and just the primal fear that is showing up and also the primal demands for us to change our lives in some way, which is also in itself terrifying. If, if we're not ready or if we resist, we don't want to surrender all of these elements. So this just stood out to me as the conclusion for our reading. I have had to recognize that I must submit to what I fear. Yes, even more, that I must even love what horrifies me. We must learn such from that saint who was disgusted by the plague infections. She drank the pus of plague boils and became aware that it smelled like roses. The acts of the saint were not in vain. In everything regarding your salvation and the attainment of mercy, you are dependent on your soul. Thus, no sacrifice can be too great for you. If your virtues hinder you from salvation, discard them, since they have become evil to you. 
the slave to virtue finds the way as little as the slave to vices. If you believe that you are the master of your soul, then become her servant. And I'm going to just say as a footnote here, this gets tricky and it shows up at the end. You know, Jung's dealing with binaries here, but notice where he goes. And it sort of is how the Red Book concludes. But if you believe that you are the master of your soul, then become her servant. If you were her servant, make yourself her master since she needs to be ruled. These should be your first steps. Okay, all. So I think, Carol, anything more before we open up for question and answer? Okay. So we'll just do questions for 10 minutes or so. Um, I, I feel like timing's a little more loose because we don't necessarily all have appointments to run off to and cars to get into, but um, but we will um, we'll see what comes up. So see if anyone... Please feel free to be bold and, and ask whatever is arising. All questions are welcome. Anything that comes, whether it's astrological, historical, Jungian, this is kind of an ask us anything moment. I'm trying to show up. Okay. <laughs> Can you tell us who you are? I'm Anne in Maine. Okay. Hi, Anne. In Maine. Right. Go for it. All right. So I wrote my questions out this morning before I knew you were going to talk about Emma and Tony. So that's what I'm talking about. Great. And I'll start it off by saying I'm 81 years old, and I was involved in Jungian thinking at the age of 18 when I was studying in Munich. I studied there for 10 years and lived with a woman who was studying at the Jung Institute at the time. So that's over 60 years. But during that 10 years, this will sound disconnected, but it isn't. I also came within four weeks of marrying a Greek scholar. And I actually ended up marrying an English architect who I was married to for 15 years. So I knew firsthand, if you remember my age, I knew firsthand the unquestioned reality of the patriarchal entitlement of the European male. Yeah. And I knew that both as a lover and as a wife. And I think we look often at Jung's, that aspect of his life, but we don't look at it in terms of what it was like being the wife and being, being Emma, being Tony, yeah. being, Absolutely. being those characters. And I do think that Jung got Sophia. I think he finally managed to embrace Salome. He certainly got the dark feminine, the mother. But I was ne I've never been convinced in all those 60 years involved in his thinking that he ever really grasped or lived, embodied an equal of opposites, the yin-yang complementary, terity, marriage or um, anyway. Yeah. So having been deeply influenced and, and entwined in his, this is what I wrote down, his prophetic insights into the psyche and the trajectory of Western civilization, I always waited in vain for him not to truly love and honor Emma, because I think he did, or to truly honor and love Tony or any of the others, but to come to a place where he could humbly ask forgiveness for the unrepentant daemon of his patriarchal entitlement and the ways in which he used the woman in the interest and justification of his own individuation. 
even if his destiny was larger than life, and I think it was, the humble awareness of recognizing the need for an act of forgiveness from those many remarkable women in his life, and I mean a deep, deep awareness of that aspect, which I never felt, it wouldn't have detracted from his prophetic task. It would have blessed it with a dimension of embodiment that all he unveiled about the dark feminine. I'm going to add, after I'd written you my question, not knowing that was going to be the subject today, I realized, however, that would have taken away from me the equal and opposite 60-year-long task of not only deeply honoring him, but also having to just as deeply forgive the way in which he was not only a servant of the yin, of the spirit of the depths, but also still unrepentant, a servant of the unquestionably young spirit of the times as a white, cultured, privileged European male. And I realized that Jung passed the task of the act of forgiveness onto me, the next generation of women. I was not his lover. I was not his rejected lover. I was not his wife. But the act of forgiveness still got passed on to us in some way. And of course, the minute I could see that, I realized, as the spirit of the depth said, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> I realized that the act of forgiveness would be to forgive myself yeah. as well, that I still struggled with, which was that I am a white, privileged, privileged, maybe not economically, but privileged woman as was Emma and Tony, a beneficiary of that patriarchal system. So that to forgive Jung would be to forgive myself. And that is where the real potential blessing lies. But anyway. I no, anyway. Thank Amen. you, God. Amen. <laughs> um, extraordinary. Uh, uh, let me Thank just... Um, you know, I think Carol and I probably both have 10,000 things, both kisses all over your face and blessings to you for everything you just expressed. Um, but, um, but let me just say kind of a few things that come to me as you're talking, you know, something people who study with me more, I say this a lot, but that, um, my general feeling about Jung's work is that I sort of take 80% of it and reject 20%. I think 80% of it is sort of mind-blowingly ahead of its time, so to speak, and just profoundly courageous. Um, and 20% feels, and again, it's kind of in that footnote I read, it's like, ah, there's something like you, he's still wrestling with it. But, you know, even in the 20%, I have, one, so much gratitude to him because there's no way that I would be where I am without his journey and his, right. Um, but also I can feel his humanity in it. And there's something comforting about that because he's such a great man to feel his, his weird racism and his weird misogyny poking out all over the place from time to time is um, it's, it's disappointing, but it's also, if we are not gonna, you know, just have heroes um, you know, if we can really have humans that we aspire to, that's what Jung's entire journey is trying to teach us, certainly the Red Book. He's a human. We are humans, right? 
and he's a human in patriarchy. Um, he, he, again, to me, the courage of a man at the top of patriarchy rejecting it is one of the most important stories of our time because it's not a man who didn't get the fruits of patriarchy rejecting it. And it's not a woman who got the fruits or didn't. It's a man at the top of patriarchy who rejects the fruits of patriarchy in a way. I mean, again, and I hear what you're saying is he didn't really reject it, you know, Um, but he's, he's saying something is fundamentally lopsided about how I am living and how the culture is living. And in, in order to, to move through that lopsidedness, the fundamental aspect of what I have to do is reclaim the feminine. Um, last thing I'll say to this, because again, I think we could go on forever and I want to hand this off to Carol as well. Um, the, the way I think Tony and Emma in their own relationship to patriarchy also had a lot to do with whether or not they got claimed or not. Um, Tony's own writing on the psychology of women is, is kind of, um, honestly, by today's standards, there's something just yucky about it. Um, Mm -hmm. she saw herself as being, I mean, I, I I don't want to put words into her mouth. This is very much my own interpretation. My reading of the bit of Tony's writing that is published on the psychology of women really still reveres men and really has women in different ways, kind of as the creatures around men. Do you agree with that? Anne? I do. I absolutely. Yeah. And I have to discover that in myself. Well, and that's it. And so I think that it also, just as you said, I mean, we are all detoxing from patriarchy. We are all fundamentally detoxing from in every single thing that we learned, even in the most feminist of households, all of the toxicity that we have taken in about where values lie and where the devalued is. It all is being flipped. And it's such a fundamental thing, you know, the shift from the age of Aquarius to the age of Pisces, rather to the age of Aquarius, which Jung wrote a lot about Um, this, this fundamental reclamation of the feminine. It's something that whatever body we are born into, we need to be wrestling deeply with because it means a shift of our egos it means a shift of our relationship to the unconscious and a relationship to the embodied people in our world. Um, and that's true for whatever skin color color we have. And, and, and of course that journey is very different. Um, you know, again, we could go on and on about this. Um, oh, there's so much to say. And again, just blessings to you. Um, thank you, know, you. Hugs, virtual hugs. Thank you. Um, Carol, tell, tell us your thoughts on all this. Well, I, I don't have very much more to add except to say that one of the things that that this is not only Jung, but this whole idea that projection is the beginning of individuation and that we can be thankful for, this is Anne Ulanov's um, idea, that that whether we are projecting out of denial or rejecting out of fear, projecting out of fear, projecting out of a desire to be ruled or a desire to rule, whatever reason that we find that we are finding what we cannot hold in ourselves in someone else for the good of it and for the ill of it. And Yulinov says, we, someone else holds our gold for us for a while, <laughs> which I think is just a lovely way to think about this. Please hold this for me that I cannot hold because it scares me because it's hard for me because the culture says no because I'm asleep to it. It, it, 
that uh, Jung is a remarkable figure on, on which we can all project that out of the rich unconscious out of which we all rise. I mean, the horoscope is a picture of how we in our specificity arise from, from the oceanic that we arise from it in specificity and we, we are in a constant dance with other to become either more specific or to return to the unconscious. So Jung's model of that surrender and descent, um, and it, as he said, my path isn't your path. And yet he continues to your point, Anne, about that he definitely is a great man, that we, that, that, men and women can come to individuation through the project through projecting onto him and to what he stood for, you know, cause I, I, you know, I'm 75 and I like everybody else um, in deeply, deeply internalized what I would call not only patriarchal values, but martial values to have a territory, to be somebody, to, to, to perform, to produce, to be identified by my outer world self. And, and one of the things I think about that is that in the great matriarchal ages, we were tied to mother. We were tied to the tribe. We were, you know, I say this, we're, I live in these beautiful Douglas fir trees. They're my guardians. That, that the, the coyote that comes across my backyard every day is the brother and the wind is my auntie. And that kind of thinking of the unity and the union of all things that is deep in our bones as a memory, deep in our bones, that you can't stay tied to mother forever. So the, this long arc of individuation in which you are distinct, you are separate, you are you know, self-made, now we are coming to the end of that arc and we see the incredible gifts of it and the incredible damage of it. And we are at um, a full on huge pivot right now. And that and Carol, is such a critical piece. I mean, um, the, the, what Jung understood, and this gets into Joseph Campbell's work in, in the hero's journey, right? But, but it's, that each of our individual journey of individuation is the cellular layer of our collective individuation process. And so as we shift from this patriarchal era to whatever's next, right? Um, thank God. But we're shifting from that kind of adolescent male who, who separates from psyche and is the ego and, and separate and proud and, um, you know, um, again, that you speak to the marshal, that kind of Mars quality, the warrior, right? But that we have to come back to the mother. We have to come back to relationship. We have to come back to the deep unconscious and the ego. That's the ego self-axis um, that Edinger and Neumann speak to. It's Jung's understanding of individuation. Once the ego grows, which is this patriarchal era, it has to turn back to the witnessing, the mother, the Douglas fir trees, whatever. And as Jung showed us that individual journey, it's also really speaking to collectively, hopefully praise is what's unfolding right now. If I'm still on, I would say we're being asked for spiritual maturity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Which in a way, and again, I think of this just in developmental psychology is maturity. 
maturity is fundamentally a capacity to exist as an individual and a capacity to recognize the collective and relationship. And that's often simply represented as the feminine. So it's a, it's a maturity of the capacity to witness the feminine, right? Not as, not as the whore or the hag or the silly girl, but as the feminine and, and our whole culture learning that again, and us as embodied women who know how long it takes to detox from that. Um, we all have to do that work, right? Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you again, my goodness. Carol, thank you. Thank you, Satya. Thanks, everybody, for, for um, holding us and honoring this work. Thank you. We, we hope you are safe and well um, wherever you are. We're going to be visiting you every Sunday. Um, I'm just going to click out. I want to do this for a moment before we end because, again, just to see your faces. It's so sweet. So hello and goodbye to all of you. Take care. Bye-bye. For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this audio into a podcast, to the very talented Haley Hendricks for our intro and outro music, and to Ray Davis for our podcast art. We're grateful to all of you. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome podcast.